Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Are you secretly Googling questions about weed? How to Do the Pot is here to help with short weekly episodes that will inspire you to feel confident about cannabis for health, well-being, and fun. This podcast demystifies cannabis for women through a delightful mix of storytelling, practical tips, and expert advice. So if you want to hear how women are exploring cannabis and have all of your questions about weed answered, listen to How to Do the Pot, wherever you get your podcasts. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. This week, I'm speaking with Sudanese-American poet, performer, writer, and teacher, Safia El-Hilo. We're talking about her new book of poetry, Girls That Never Die, which totally stunned and took my breath away. It's all about family, Muslim girlhood, love, and the shame and silence women can carry. But it's also about friendship. And in this show, Safia will read one of my favorite of her poems called Ode to My Home Girls. And I'll be so surprised if this poem doesn't make you pine for those precious school friends of yours. Safia is also the author of two award-winning books, The January Children and Home is Not a Country. Now, in this episode, we talk about many things, her amazing fashion sense and how it relates to her poetry, what it means to be a poet in all aspects of her life, and why, for Safia, poetry can feel like a battle with language. I had to record this episode from an unusual location due to COVID, so it could sound a little different. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. What a pleasure it is to have Safia El Hilo on Lit Up. I have only recently come to your work and your poetry, and it's been an absolute like explosion of beauty and thoughtfulness and, and rawness. And thank you for putting this out in the world. I want to start not where we might assume but with your personal style, because I have been following you, you know, on Instagram and Twitter and every post you put up, you're in some just incredibly bold, eclectic outfit that I feel in my mind now I've read your poetry must have something to do with this creativity and this passion and this burning inside of you. Can you tell me how you like to dress? I feel like the impulse to write a poem and the impulse to get dressed come from the same place in me where I'm always trying to articulate myself exactly. 
You know, there's always this kind of nebulous, unformed feeling when I wake up in the morning and when I sit down to write and I'm like trying to kind of scrape my way towards the poem of it by giving it language. It does feel like self-articulation for me where if I feel like I can't say exactly is what I'm trying to say, then it's like having an itch. It's really, it's a really frustrating feeling. Even when I am getting dressed sometimes, I, you know, I'll put on the wrong shirt and it's like the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And when I'm writing a poem, I will use a lazy verb and then it keeps me up at night until I can fix it. And so I do feel like they come from similar places, but also, honestly, I've been writing poetry since I was very young. I've been like doing poetry as a job in some capacity since I was maybe 17 years old. And part of just the the like deep interest in fashion is that it feels very important for me to have a hobby because my hobby turned into my job while I was still in grade school. And so it's very important for me to have a creative thing that I do every day that is not like what I do to pay my rent. I'm also wondering if there's some freedom in not having to put language to color and pattern and and those types of things. And yet there's so much subtext in our clothes and the way we present ourselves in the same way that so much lives around the words in your poems. Yeah. I think language, even though it is, you know, my big love, my big obsession, language is so fraught for me as well in like, you know, a deeply unoriginal diasporic bilingual way. And also I've committed myself my whole life to this uphill battle of trying to control language in some way, even though it is truly an impossible task where there's this idea that if I can only learn all of the correct words or figure out all of the possibilities of syntax, then I will not be at the mercy, the ways that language has made me feel in more vulnerable moments in my life and the things that language has kept locked away and inaccessible to me. So in a lot of ways, the poetry is trying to make myself the boss. And, you know, it's not working. Language is the boss. But when I'm speaking a language, I'm actually not in control of the entirety of what I communicate because I can choose the words that I'm saying. I can choose the volume at which I say them. In a poem, I can choose whether or not it's lowercase or capitalized traditionally or whatever. But in person, in my body, with my history, there is still always the a moment of, oh, where is your accent from? Oh, it's so interesting. You speak English so well, you you know. And the English language is complicated for my people. My, I'm from Sudan. So it's not necessarily that the English was like super brought to us by choice. And here I am trying to get good at it. So with color and texture and fabric and things that I feel no responsibility to have a fluency in, it feels easier to articulate myself with less baggage. Walking around like dressed in head to toe black, not saying something to someone, and I don't have to answer any follow-up questions about it. You know what I mean? Sometimes you just want to have a one-sided conversation. Sometimes you just want to give a monologue. I get to say my piece and I don't have to hear anyone perceive me back. You've said so many 
things in those beautiful sentences that I want to grab onto, and maybe that's because you speak in poetry as well. But one of them was that feeling like you have a responsibility in a certain language to have mastered it in some way, or there's pressure to have done that. Is there a language for you that you feel that pressure most? Is it English? Is it Arabic? I think I'm different people in in those two different languages. I, I just finished reading Al-Amin Abdelmahmoud's memoir, Son of Elsewhere, and he has a really beautiful passage about eternally being a child in Arabic because he immigrated to Canada, I think, when he was 12. I moved to the U.S. when I was 10 or 11. And so that's kind of when the full switchover into like a dailiness in English began. And so my Arabic is in there. I'm still an Arabic speaker, but I am 10 years old in that language. You know, I don't have an Arabic vocabulary for some of the like messier, more complicated emotions that come with adulthood. I speak a very familial, domestic Arabic where I know how to like address an auntie respectfully and ask someone about their day and tell them that like, I'm well and my family's well and my health is good and school is good. But when it comes to trying to express something a little bit more unwieldy, I don't have the vocabulary for that. It's interesting, this idea, there's such a huge shift in childhood or in adulthood even, that kind of like a before the fall, the the knowledge that things aren't what they seem. Yeah. Was that that move? To America for you, or would you, you know, say that? I don't that- know that the move to America was in itself that kind of foundational rupture because up until that point, I had lived in maybe five other countries for those first 10 years of my life. And so it was a very casual thing to move countries at that point. It wasn't a big deal. And I think the most confusing thing to me was that the years continue to pass and we stayed. So I think I'm still a little bit disoriented by the fact that I'm still here and it's been like 20 something years. I came to this country speaking English. I I had had an English language education my whole life up until that point. But this was the first country where my English was treated like it was a problem of some kind. I could read and write fluently above my grade level. And when I got here, I had already completed the fourth grade and then had to do it again because I spoke with an accent and I was shy and a little quiet and everyone was worried that I didn't super have a grasp on the language. Meanwhile, I had been reading like big, heavy, hardcover books in English for years at that point. I think this is a thing that happens in the West in general, but speaking English with an accent is treated sort of like there's a lack of intelligence to it instead of the accent being kind of a flex. The accent says, I speak many languages, you know? It was a, the, the start, I think, of a big wound around language because I don't like to be told that I'm not doing a good job, you know? So hearing that my English was an issue in this way, my response was to like apply myself deeply to this project of putting on a convincing act as an American. And so I learned all the pop culture and I memorized all the songs on the radio and I like, you know, read the teen magazines religiously and all that stuff. And so I think that's part of the reason why I'm 
able to write poetry in English now is that the whole thing just feels like an exercise. It's not close to the bone for me, this language. There are several reasons why I've never written poetry in Arabic, my vocabulary probably being top of the list. But it also, I can try and fail to articulate myself in English. I can try and fail to write a poem in English. And that failure, I feel like, doesn't reflect deeply on me in any way. I don't take it personally. If I were to try and fail to do something in Arabic, I like would probably never sleep ever again. You know, it, it feels like it's saying something about myself and something closer to, I don't know, like my essential personhood. And English does not feel close to my essential personhood, so I can play with it. Does this in any way connect to the themes that are in your novel, which is called Home is Not a Country? I think what I was trying to ask myself were questions about community and about belonging. And I think, you know, the way we're fed ideas about countries and the nation state and nationality is that's supposed to be kind of a shortcut to belonging. If you know what country you're from, you know who you belong to. But I don't think countries are not communities. Those people, for the most part, don't know each other. I don't just know everyone Sudanese. I know a lot of people Sudanese, but I don't know everyone Sudanese. And so it's this idea of belonging to a country, I think actually like warps the meaning and the intention behind the idea of belonging for me. I've spent my whole life going to Sudan. And so it's not like I would be, you know, in my diasporic longing in America and then go to Sudan and then be like, oh, finally, I'm home. Everything is better now. I love Sudan. I have a great time there. It is a country just like any other country in that it is deeply imperfect and cannot be the thing that anyone wants it to be. So I go to Sudan. I hang out with my cousins. I hang out with my grandparents. I like eat. I take an afternoon nap, you know, but it's not like my like deep internal crisis has been resolved because there is Sudan as it actually exists. And then there is this fictionalized Sudan in my head as it was fed to me as a child of the diaspora. You know, I think a lot of parents do this as a way of just trying to get you inve to invest in the culture when the proof of that culture does not exist in the environment that they're raising you in. So I understand why I was made to fall in love with this fictional Sudan. But the flaw in that plan is that I was going to actual Sudan all the time and it wasn't this like, you know, never ending golden age party where everyone was just like writing poetry and singing all the beautiful old love songs. It's just a regular place like any other. And so in undergoing that process, I had to ask myself, what is it that I actually was longing for? And like pinning all of that longing on an idea of Sudan so that I didn't have to do the work of excavating what it is I actually was looking for. And what I was looking for and craving in craving that belonging was community. One of the thoughts I was trying to work out in making Home is Not a Country is I spent so long pining for this idea of a country to belong to that I really did not spend enough time appreciating the spaces that I was experiencing deep belonging, my communities, my chosen families, like all of these spaces around me where I like had that warm hug of context. I think the title of the book is maybe the like hard one conclusion of all of that processing, which is that home is not a country. Home is like 
my family and my homegirls and this apartment that I like very much and a good book and, you know, a bathtub, whatever. It's not like it feels so silly of me that for long, so long I was like, oh, the nation state, my true home. You know, what even was I talking about? Well, it can take us a while to work out. It will always be an ongoing question and it comes and goes. But I think you're right. It's about it's about people and who you're with. And, you know, we all just had a long weekend in America, the July 4th weekend that, you know, feels complicated at this juncture of history. Like, what are we celebrating? Friend was saying that, you know, her family's motto was home is wherever we are as a family because they knew they would never really be able to be kind of in this one place. I breathed more deeply, even just with that notion. And then coming across, you know, your work as well, thinking, wow, there's a poem I loved so much in the book, Ode to My Home Girls. And I just think it's such a joy. And I would love to hear it in your voice, if you can find it in your own book. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, here we go. Ode to My Home Girls. Smelling of orange rind, of cardamom, most beautiful girls in the world. Wake up, bitch, we're getting waffles. You can keep crying, but you're going out. My marriages, my alibis, my bright and hardy stalks of protea, and all I know of love I learned at 13, dialing Basma's home phone by heart to three-way call whatever boy, so that weeks later, when the phone bill came, only Basma's familiar number beside the timestamp, clearing my name. Basma herself staying awake for hours to hang up the phone after. You who send pictures of your rashes to the group text and long voice notes from the bathtub, your laughter echoing against the tiles. You who scatter the world's map, piling into cheap buses and budget airlines, four of us asleep in my dorm bed six of us overflowing my studio apartment, false lashes for weeks after like commas in my every pillowcase. You clog my toilet and admit it. You text me screenshots from the Gucci fashion show, getting rich so I can get you this. And when I lived alone, and that man followed me one night home from the six train, up Lexington and into the hallway, tried for hours to break open my front door, you took turns from all your cities and stayed overnight with me on the phone for three days, snoring and murmuring in your sleep. Thank you. What a poem. I was just transported to so many places and then you land with that terror and yet the camaraderie and the beautiful friendship of those friends. I don't know, when did you write this one? I wrote this poem, I wrote Ode to My Home Girls in 2019. I had just moved to Oakland, California after four years of living back in Washington, D.C., which is also where I grew up. And my time as an adult in D.C. coincided with a moment where my two childhood best friends had also moved back to D.C. One of them had been in New York for grad school and moved back. One of them had been living in Zanzibar for, I think, three years and had moved back. And we'd all gone to university in different places. And so to just be running around this city of our childhoods with 
these two people I've been friends with since I moved to this country. It was just this kind of like magical gilded time. There's a particular texture to like femme friendships where, you know, you're always like touching each other's hair and like the bathroom is disgusting and everyone's wearing each other's clothes. And I just, I had not realized that that feeling was just like the default setting of my life and that it very much had to do with the feeling of being around the specific group of people who now I was very far away from, you know? And so I had friends that I could call up and be like, want to go to a poetry reading? Want to, you know, do some work together at a coffee shop? Want to go to dinner? But like, just something about this particular group of friends that I'd left behind. I feel like there was a version of myself that in leaving them back on the East Coast, a version of myself that I hadn't been able to bring with me where, I don't know, like, I didn't go to a party for years because that's who I used to go to parties with, you know? I, like, didn't stay up late for a long time because that's who I used to stay up late with. So I just, I really missed them. And I think I also was in a moment where I was just trying to rethink what it is that I thought I was allowed to write poetry about and that it felt like the only experiences of mine that I had treated as worthy of being written about in a poem were the things that hurt me the most. And when I did write about love, it was usually romantic love and its failures. And it just felt like such an enormous oversight to have not written a poem, an ode, a love poem to these like big loves of my life to, you know, the reason I even like have any sort of basic vocabulary for love is having loved these people for, I don't know, like 20 years or something at this point. And so I thought, of course, I have to write them a poem. What took me so long? You bring up that poetry is almost seen as the most erudite of all the arts. So we must only write about those, you know, the deepest thoughts and emotions. And it's such a joy when you can just come across a poem that is in itself deeply beautiful and complicated, but I don't know, a relatable in a way that just makes you sigh. Uh, you're also a teacher now. So what is it like to encourage other poets on their journey to choose their subjects? I think I had to decide how much I loved poetry. The question was, do I love poetry so much that I want to be a poet all the time, including when I'm like in a hotel room with four of my homegirls that we're sharing, it's disgusting. And there's like stretchy club clothes all over the floor and someone's foundation broke into the sink. Or is it that I only kind of love poetry and so I only want to be a poet when I'm experiencing the noble melancholy emotions that people historically have written poetry about. And the realization I had is that I love poetry so much and poetry is so like inextricable from the way I see the world and the way I move through the world that it's important for me to just be a poet in everything I do, even if it's like, you know, holding my homegirl's hair back while she vomits. I'm a poet in that moment too. I'm so glad for for everyone. Um, poets have to look at the messy all the parts of our humanity. Are there any parts of your life that you still struggle with to, to put words to in that way? Or are you feeling pretty free, like pretty limber as a poet at the moment? I would love to feel free. 
Someone tell me how it feels. <laughs> With Girls That Never Die, I definitely kind of ripped up the list of things that I tell myself I am and am not allowed to write poetry about. But it's still, I still have a few lines that I think it feels important not to cross. And so generally, I try to be very careful when I'm writing poetry that involves other people and stories that involve other people. Because if I'm talking about myself, I can put myself and my eye and my speaker through hell because I'm the one who's doing it. So I have agency in that. But all the other people in my life, they didn't ask to be like friends or siblings or parents or spouses to a poet. And so I try to exercise some responsibility when it comes time to bring those people into the poem where I try not to just put them through the ringer the way I would do with myself. I'm not trying to break anyone's story in a poem of mine. You know what I mean? So if it's something that they're not talking about and that they're not comfortable talking about publicly, then I surely have no business writing poetry about it. There is a lot of stuff that still feels scary to me. I mean, there's a lot about this book that feels scary to me. You know, I feel like to a casual reader, the poems are not so spicy or whatever. I'm not like admitting to anything incriminating, but I spent most of my life as a poet before this book kind of maneuvering myself so that I was primarily writing poetry, looking outside of myself or looking at other people, looking outside of my body. So I knew how to like talk about my feelings or whatever, but it usually was about like a country or a family member or like a dead Egyptian pop star or whatever. And so as a as a speaker in the poem, I got pretty good at being able to like point and be like, look over there and get my reader to look over there. The thing about this book is that it's look over here from start to finish. And it feels like my body is on display in a way that I had not been doing before. My body's being examined in a way that I have never done in a poem before this book. And it's scary. It feels like being naked. Other than that, I was scared and I was ashamed in a way that perpetuated all of these kind of trappings of shame that I was trying to free myself from. But it's the job was never going to be complete if I was like, yes, I'm liberated. I'm unashamed, but I won't write poetry about my body. You know what I mean? So it's if it was like, I don't want to write poetry about my body because that's a boundary and that's how I feel safe and whatever. That would have been one thing. You know, I, I was brought up to be a good girl and to be respectable and respectful and honorable and modest. And the people who were teaching those things to me thought that they were teaching me to keep myself safe. That if no one was looking at my body, then no one would want to hurt me. But unfortunately, plot twist, that's not how it works. I'm, I'm a black woman. I'm a Muslim. Everyone wants to hurt me. So it's this idea that like invisibility would protect me was never an option. I could try as hard as I like to make myself invisible, but I am moving through the world in this body. And so there is kind of this tension between like hyper visibility and invisibility at all times without, you know, me like silencing myself on top of all that. There's this idea that your silence will not protect you. Keeping quiet about my body was not making my body any safer in this world, in this country. It feels like the least I could do is write my little poems and at least feel like, I don't know, it, it helped, I think, to dismantle some of these harmful beliefs I've had my whole life. I like wrote a poem about my body and nothing bad happened, really. You know, 
the the world didn't end. You know, a meteor did not land at my writing desk. The ground did not open up. I wasn't like shunned from my community. So I just had to learn to be a little bit braver. They're not little poems, you know, in that sense. I feel like they are incredibly important, beautiful poems. And I know you know that too. Something else, you you know, you were talking about is that if you're told to hide something, you know, even if it is out of that protective instinct, it kind of embeds shame in you if you're meant to hide, protect. I can never truly embody your experience, never will be able to, but through these poems, I can... I can swim inside of that realm, but then I can relate to my own, you know, and that's poetry, isn't it? We all read or art, you know, we, we jump into someone else's point of view and, and have an experience, you know, a relationship with ourselves inside of that. I wondered, can we do like a, a Russian roulette of your book and have you open at a page and read us that poem that we land upon? Sure. Love this game. Okay. The one that I opened to is we were talking earlier about the fact that I once upon a time lived in New York. Here was a poem about it. Uh, It's called Memoir. In winter, I'd pierced my nose and prepared to move to that city to be an artist. And late in the summer, I did. Hours of highway, then the sudden clog of one-way streets, sweet stink of garbage overflowing in its bins. In the new city, I was not marked. I named myself and was believed. I wore blue eyeliner and allowed musicians to court me. Parade of freeform dreadlocks and perfect tattered white tees. I met him the day I returned from Cairo. Seven in the morning at a diner because my body thought it afternoon because he never slept. I lived on the 20th floor and the wind sounded like crowds of women screaming. For years, I loved him and could not keep the secret. I rode the train at any hour in any direction. I broke dawn in strangers' apartments, someone always singing, someone always unearthing a hidden guitar. We slept on each other's floors and never asked, dollar pizza darkening a paper plate, our bodies crowding the F train, crowding the Lower East Side, the thrill of a party where no one went home, hours in the park colored by the changing light, the long walk from uptown to the village, We were like children left to govern ourselves, cheap metal blooming green against our skin in the heat, cups of mostly milk and sugar, singed taste of the coffee underneath. I harbored every day the fear that he would die. I held my breath when I passed cemeteries, ladders, any naked flickering bulb. I pierced six more holes into my ears, tended each summer to a new infection. I wore Doc Martens until my feet bled and never broke them in. I thought I'd stay forever. I thought we'd all live. More than I wanted to make anything, I wanted to stay alive. More than the thick stink of the summer, our knotted and painted bodies filling the train car with noise. Left alone, I'd collapse for days into bed, exhausted but unable to sleep, feeling the ache of my fingernails growing long, my chemicals going sour. I only wanted sleep. I did not want to die. So I left. It was six years to the day, an apartment I'd loved. I escaped, I think, with my life. 
Because I loved him, I look up every few years his name to check for an obituary. I tend to my infections, salt water and clean cotton. There is so much I have forgotten, so much I did not think to record. My shorter hair, those first moments after waking, my eyes still shut, trying to remember where I'd slept. I look through photographs, our younger faces filling the frame, our bodies always touching. I did not think of it as a time to survive. I thought we'd all still know each other and that we'd all still be alive, meeting years later to retell the story, exaggerating every detail, the cartilage fully healed. I set the table as if someone else is coming, but I got to the other side. I left everyone behind. Thank you. Gosh, you escaped. It's a New York experience, isn't it? To fall in love and then try and survive it. Ah. <laughs> okay, so I was lucky enough to have Hala Alayan on, on Lit Up, and I saw that in the beautiful notes of your book that, I mean, I almost was were brought to tears by how thoughtful they were. Um, but you talked about being with her and writing, I think, 30 poems in 30 days. You know, you've, you've been had these periods where you've tried to write a poem every day and talked about that. I'm wondering, you know, what is your relationship to poetry on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, out in the world? Are you looking for prompts or are you just almost like a tuning fork tuning in and out. So Hala and I are actually just now wrapping up. We just wrote 20 poems in 20 days during the month of June, which we had not done that exercise since the one I mentioned in the book, but I'd been thinking about it a lot. And I also had written very little since we had done that. And it had worked so well that other time that I was like, Hala, you want to do it again and see if it works again. And it did, which is great. If you just think about how much time I spend wanting to write versus how much time I actually spend writing, it really, I don't know what what happens. I could easily make the time, which I learned this past month doing this 2020 with Hala. So it's not about time. It's not about busyness. Um, there is a, a sort of fear that kind of sets in every time I finish writing a poem where part of me is afraid I'll never be able to do it again. I just, I wake up every day and I want to write a poem. And most days I don't write a poem. And the reason is because I am so afraid that I'm going to sit down and write and the poem will be bad and that that will say something about me or my abilities or like my value as a person or something that I would much rather spare myself the heartache and just, you know, go watch TV or something. But then the days accumulate that way. And then I look back and I can't remember the last time I wrote a poem. And I don't like that feeling because I feel like a poet kind of all the time. But if the idea is how you spend your days is how you spend your life, I don't know that I spend my days writing poetry. And so I don't feel like I am representing myself properly, even to myself. If it's just that, oh, I don't feel like it today, I am pretty good at honoring that feeling and not forcing myself to write. But it so often is that I really quite badly want to write and then I don't. And so one of 
the things I appreciated about being in this like little micro writing group with Hala is that it it's a bit like exposure therapy. You know, I have to sit down every day and find myself to a poem and that poem might not be good. I might sit down that day and write a bad poem and the world doesn't end. I can't just go and lick my wounds because the next day I have to sit down and write a poem again. So it really, I think, like helps bring the fear down to scale. You know, it's like I read bad poetry all the time and nothing happens to me. And yet I don't know why it's so easy for me to forget that and to make the bad poem like this boogeyman that lives under the bed that I'm so afraid of that I would rather not even go anywhere near the neighborhood of poetry for fear of facing the bad poem. My last question is, Safio, what lights you up? My people light me up. My friends loving my people well lights me up. That particular feeling of like sitting around a dinner table in a friend's apartment where they like don't have enough dining chairs for everyone there. So you kind of have to pull in chairs from other parts of the room so that everyone can sit. That feels like a very sacred treasured feeling that I carry around a lot. Thank you. That's perfect. That's my idea of being lit up too. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Olmer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Radofsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.